You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars podcast with Nefa Ahoy, a show that shares the stories of successful Africans in business and how they did it. It's our story told our way to inspire our people. This podcast is sponsored by IDS Consultant Ghana Limited, a company dedicated to supporting small and medium-sized enterprises with accounting and business advisory services at an affordable rate. Visit www.idsconsultantga.com to learn more. don't realize is nobody cares about your day-to-day running of the business everybody cares about how much more value can you create going forward so if you cannot demonstrate that from a strategic perspective from an ambition perspective then you know you're really not going to be considered much and and, and that's maybe what one of the things that worked for me um, i didn't know this before but because of my ambition, that's how I was wired, right? I mean, the CEO said, look, I'm looking for Haiti to become this type of business. I'm looking for new lines of revenue. And I said, I can turn around the more money business and I can get to this stage in 24 months. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another inspiring episode on Africa's Business Rockstars. Now, today's guest is a true example of grit and defying the odds no matter what life throws at you. He believes that opportunism should not be seen as negative. Rather, opportunism is simply taking advantage of what is available. He's the embodiment of humility, respect, and integrity, and is the current CEO of MTN Ghana. Selom Adadevo is our guest today on Africa's Business Rockstars. Hello, Selom, and welcome to Africa's Business Rockstars. Hello, and um, great to be here today. Looking forward to the discussion. Thank you for accepting our invitation. How has the week been? It's almost the weekend. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, no, I've been looking forward to the weekend since Monday. So, <laughs> <laughs> Is that to say it's been, it's been a packed week? It has been. It's not unusual, though. These, these past few weeks have been quite demanding, but a lot of fun as well. So, Okay, so we'll go straight into this. There's loads of articles that have been written about you and we've done our research, but we'd really like to understand what was it like Selom growing up as a child, you know, so that young Selom in your family, what, what was it like? What was he like? Oh, wow. Okay. You're taking me back over 40 something years. Yes. Um, so let's see. I, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure other people have a very different description of me as a child, but let me describe myself in the most positive way since I'm doing it myself. <laughs> but um, <laughs> look, as a child, I, well, first of all, you know, I was I was born in Germany. Okay. And, you know, my parents studied in Germany and we lived there for a number of years. And I, I don't really remember my years in Germany because I was so young when I left. Okay. But if I look at the years that I do remember when we moved back to Ghana and then I left and went to the UK for a number of years for medical reasons, um, those years were quite tough because, you know, at the time I was still trying to figure out exactly what this place called the world was and and find myself, right? So I'd switched from Germany to Ghana to the UK and, you know, all the different cultures and expectations and lifestyles. Mm-hmm. It kind of unsettles you a bit. And I had some medical conditions, primarily with my eye. So that entire thing made me a little reserved, maybe not very confident, okay. um, someone who was trying to find his feet and his place in society. And, and that's what I had to deal with at the very early stage of my career. But when I did come back to Ghana, eventually, um, I started finding myself and I found really that, you know, being able to express yourself in different ways, especially in sports, in different activities, not even academic, right? It gives you a certain level of confidence around your colleagues around your friends and around your schoolmates. And I think life really started for me at about age 11, age 12, Mm. when I started really finding my feet and finding my own. Um, But yeah, I mean, my childhood days were quite fun. We're three boys. And for the most part, my sister came along when I was 10. Okay. Um, So for the most part, growing up as a kid, as a child, it was three boys, very energetic, always competing even competing (laughs) to name a character in a movie so if we're going to watch a movie tonight you would have to name who you're going to be in the movie and you know whatever happens in a movie happens to you in life it's (laughs) it's one of those so it was a you know a thing that we had yes and we had a lot of sports activities you know around the house we had a big compound and we had everything from table tennis badminton 
tennis, football, you know, so we're always playing, very energetic group of people. And where we lived had a lot of young people our age as well. So they would join in. So mm. we're a very lively bunch, you know, always doing something quite energetic. But I'll pause here so you can steer me, you know, happy, happy to chat more. <laughs> so I'm just looking at the trajectory because you mentioned German born and then you left to Ghana and then back into the UK. And I'd also like to know how instrumental your parents were in, you know, this entire journey that you sort of mapped out. Because you've mentioned your siblings, but what about the parents? Were they there? What was the relationship like? Yeah, no, my parents were, were definitely there. They were the, the guards, the soldiers of the house. And, you know, my dad is a medical doctor. He's a gynecologist, okay. obstetrician. Okay. My mom is a dental surgeon. Okay. So, you know, I, <laughs> my dad is a, you know, we have an interesting relationship. He is tough as hell maybe tough as steel <laughs> you know he he's very structured very organized and and i think growing up we i struggle i personally struggled with that okay um, you know but today it's funny someone was telling me a story yesterday you know one of the customer service ladies here who's been helping my dad with a few things and she described my dad and, and she said, it's amazing how similar the two of you are, you know. But I was like, are you really serious? <laughs> because, you know, growing up, I used to avoid my dad. He was too tough. He would ask very tough questions. Yeah. He was very demanding in terms of quality and precision. Maybe a bit of the German, you know, precision. Yeah. He, he, yeah. You know, he learned when he was in school. Um, so everything was super accurate. Okay. And as a child, you really didn't want that, right? You wanted everything to be very sort of free and fluid and yeah. you know you didn't have all these restrictions yeah my mom she is amazing um, growing up i used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen with my mom mm. always work with my mom and you know there'll be comments like what sort of man are you going to be in in, in the future you know always sitting <laughs> around your mom and i would i remember some, i mean some of my memories were sitting on a stool in the kitchen just making up stories i had a very um wild imagination mm -hmm. and I used to make things up you mm -hmm. know you know things that happened in school that never happened you know and they're all very funny stories so my mom would just <laughs> be cooking and listening to me for hours I mean I could talk for hours yeah so I think a part of me I actually do feel that my natural talents were actually more on the creative side okay yeah, because that's where I started I did a lot of artwork and you know I did participate in certain you know art competitions as a kid and the most memorable, I've digressed a bit from my parents, but the most memorable was, you know, when I won the gold medal in the 27 Children's World Art Exhibition in, in Seoul, South Korea. Okay. Um, as an 11-year-old or as a 10-year-old, I can't remember now. Um, and, you know, that was probably one of the biggest achievements as a child. Right. Um, but I never really progressed too much in, um, in pursuing my artistic talents. But I think it does express itself in other ways in, right. in, in my life as well. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, that's pretty much it. I think my parents have been very instrumental in who I am today, the values that, you know, I represent and that I believe in, and the discipline that, you know, I've grown up with all came from my parents. So right. I'm really grateful to them for that. Right. You did mention that um, I think age 11 is is where you recall, you know, your your childhood really stepping up. And what, what, what was so pivotal about the age of 11? I don't think there was any specific milestone but you know I think I just sort of started feeling more confident in myself I went to secondary school at age 11 okay and, and I think I mean I always felt I was a little inadequate and a lot of that was you know I wasn't a very confident child there were lots of complexities but I think around age 11 when when I finished common entrance I had one of the best grades in the country and it just sort of I'd never really done well in school mm. until that point right mm. so it was a big moment for me feeling that I could do great things as well. My older brother was very smart. I mean, he was probably one of the top two or top three in, in that same common entrance exam in his time. Mm. And he had always been top of his class and I was, you know, never really. So being able to be top three in a country was, you know, similar to my older brother was a big achievement for right. me. And I think it reinforced that I did have certain things that maybe I wasn't too aware of at yeah. the time or wasn't too obvious and or hadn't been able to express because I did feel I was really good, but <laughs> it didn't really reflect in my assessments yeah. and in my grades and all of that. So, you know, this was really confirming that there is something somewhere that I could tap into. So, yeah, I think things change a lot for me just mentally, psychologically from age 11. Okay, yeah. but what pushed you to, 
ensure that you graduated with really good grades? Because you did mention that throughout you know, school, you were in the best of students. However, this is the same person whose classmates are probably saying, how can he be top? You know, we know him from class. This wasn't him. So what pushed you? Look, I'm not sure. I mean, like I said, I always thought I was good. <laughs> <laughs> and there'll be some exams that I'll do really well in and others that I'll do really badly in. So okay. it was more inconsistency than anything else, okay. right? Okay. So I, I always felt that I was I understood the concepts in class. I never felt there was a problem. But it didn't reflect in my grades and people were concerned. They were obviously more concerned than I was. <laughs> but, you know, this was really the point where it was like, look, I've really landed. You know, I mean, you couldn't do this if you didn't have something. Right. right? And I had to work on consistency. But that didn't happen for a long time. So this secondary school you refer to as St. Peter's, right? Yes. I went to St. Peter's. Okay. Yes. <laughs> in, in the mountains. <laughs> what did you study and why this choice of school? I'm not sure I chose the school. Yeah, I had a feeling. <laughs> You know, my dad Our went parents. to my dad went to Saint Augustine's, and my mom went to Holy Child. Mm. So you know, you know, we 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 expected to follow. I mean, in those days, typically you you know you go to the school your parents went to. Mm. But we lived in Kumasi, and okay. Kumasi to Cape Coast was a bit of a trek, okay. and 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 therefore it was not really a practical option. St. Peter's, you know, small school, you know, German Catholic school. We had this German connection. It was between Accra and Kumasi, so it was easy to get to. So for all intents and purposes, it was just a pragmatic decision, but it was a very good school as well, which okay. was one of the objectives. Okay. So St. Peter's made sense right. right? during those days. My older brother went there as well, so I joined him. Um, so yes, okay. yeah, but I thought it was a fantastic school. So while in school, did you, did you have any um, leadership roles, for instance? Were you exhibiting characteristics that your teachers probably saw, which you didn't understand why they saw that? Well, that didn't happen at all. Now you're trying to embarrass me. So. <laughs> Apologies. I, was, um, <laughs> I lost every lecture in secondary school that I, that I ran for. <laughs> every single one of them. But I was quite, um, you know, persistent. Yeah. I kept going back and I kept losing, you know. And I remember once after I lost, I actually stood for the entertainment prefect and I lost. And I went around with a banner saying, the wise are few. You know, basically, <laughs> basically, that was my defense for losing. So I did get appointed the student representative um, council chairman when okay. I was in sixth form. Okay. I was class captain some years. Okay. So I did have some leadership roles. Yeah. Um, but I really was, I wasn't very social. Okay. Right. I was a little on my own. I was still a little to myself. Like I said, I grew up being very feeling very isolated, not right. feeling very adequate, not right. feeling that I was part of the core group. So um, I was still growing in secondary school to be a, lo a lot more social, right? but had a lot of ideas. I mean, my brain was always on, on fire. Yeah. You know, like I had a lot of things going on in my mind, but I wasn't able to express it externally. It took a long time to be able to do that. So. Right, right. Okay, so you're done with St. Peter's Secondary School and then you go to KNUSD for undergrad. Civil yeah. engineering. Yeah, you make it sound so easy. It was tough in St. Peter's, <laughs> by the way. But yes, I was done with it, yes. <laughs> what was the toughest moment? In fact, now that you stressed on that, let's get that. What would you say has, was your toughest moment in St. Peter's? Because you made it sound like it was easy. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. I mean, yeah. right from day one, I mean, I remember my, you know, the first, my first punishment was to lie under my bed. Um, a senior poured Gary on the floor. And then I had to lie on the Gary under the bed. And then he, he, he lay on the bed. And you can tell his weight was just pressing on you. I mean, that was my first, my second weekend at St. Peter's. Mm. And remember, I had my older brother in the school. I so was about to he say. wasn't from three. Yeah. And typically, you get a little bit of protection when your older brother is there. And he's very, my, I mean, my older brother was very popular as well. So, yeah. But no, none of that. You know? <laughs> so, this was just the introduction. And, and secondly, St. Peter's was on the mountain. And during the dry season, we, you know, we wouldn't have running water. Mm. So we had to walk into town and fetch water. You would walk, I don't know, 45 minutes, an hour. I can't remember now. Mm. And sometimes you had to bring back two or three buckets of water mm. for seniors to, to use. Mm. Um, so that trek was very painful, yeah. you know. And um, I mean, it was, it was an interesting place, very beautiful school. We had all sorts of equipment and facilities our science lab was exquisite. I mean, it was fantastic. We had an orchard. We had very good sporting facilities. Yeah. Um, basketball, tennis, you know, volleyball, everything. You know, it was a great school for that. 
but the conditions in the environment and in, and around the school yeah. were quite tough. Yeah. So, you know, but I enjoyed it. Look, I think it built a lot in me around just being tough. I know I look very soft, um, <laughs> but I am tough. I am tough on the inside. And um, when I remember my time in St. Peter's, people actually ask, you know, how did I survive there? Yeah, you know, yeah. like, but I've learned a lot from that experience and okay. I can survive in a lot of different, under a lot of different conditions. Well, thank you for that. So you've survived. I'm use the word survived. You survived St. Peter's. <laughs> Came out tops. Now you go to KNUST, Kwame Nkrumah University of Science and Technology to study civil engineering, which you didn't actually like, you realize later. So why that choice in the first place? Or once again, was it our parents? I'm going to have to throw a few people under the bus here, but <laughs> let me, let me not ahead. do that. Look, like I said, my parents are doctors and there was an expectation that I would do medicine. Yeah. I actually went to the interview at Legon. When you do math, physics, chemistry, and you get a certain grade, mm. you qualify to interview for medicine. So I did that. Okay. And I remember sitting in the interview and, you know, the, I think it was three or four doctors were interviewing me. And two of them were my dad's friends. In fact, one of them had been to my house <laughs> two weeks before. So I just knew that, look, this was in the bag. A walk in know, the park. And it was, I was going to get this. So I really didn't take the thing seriously. I was just given what I thought were okay answers, but yeah. certainly I wasn't applying myself enough. So, but yeah, I mean, I got a, a beautiful letter putting me in Agric um, <laughs> a few weeks later on. <laughs> so yeah, I went back. I thought maybe, you know, it was, it was it a was, mistake. It was, no, I, I think, you know, it was my, uh, my destiny not to do medicine. So okay. I really didn't want to do medicine. Yeah. You know? yeah. So it was engineering now, but engineering was also very tricky. I wanted to do electrical engineering and okay. my form, actually, I filled my form out and it had three options. You had to state your first choice, second choice, mm, and third, third. choice. Mm -hmm. And I just chose electrical engineering for all three. But the letter came back with civil engineering. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, the dean of the school was a friend of my dad's and uh, he's actually my best friend's father. Okay. And he came to my house and asked me why I didn't want to do civil engineering. And I thought it was, okay. I didn't think it was the best question <laughs> because I thought, I mean, I chose electrical. Why, didn't, why doesn't he ask me why I chose electrical? Exactly. Why is he asking me why I didn't choose civil engineering? Exactly. And there are many other engineering disciplines that I could have chosen that I didn't choose. So anyway, um, after that discussion, because I couldn't convince him why I didn't choose civil engineering, he offered me civil engineering. So that was when my <laughs> issues with civil engineering really started. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Yeah. All right. So two years in, you realized that, okay, this really isn't for you, but you had to stick with it and basically complete, you know, um, the duration of the course. But you did an interesting thing, which was you discovered your love for computers. So tell me about that. Prior to this, had you actually been, you know, around computers and what actually drove that love for computers in, in your in your undergrad? I'm very impressed with how much information you have. Well, thank you. <laughs> well, I'm, thank I'm not you. sure my parents know any of this, by the way. So. <laughs> no, look, I was a little distracted when I was on campus. Okay. And, you know, I had really found my feet. I had found my form. Mm -hmm. I was quite a jovial guy, you know, around campus, but also very serious at my schoolwork. Mm -hmm. But I also started a number of businesses while, you know, while I was on campus. Um, I was selling different things. I was importing goods from Nigeria and wholesaling them in Kumasi. I had a small store for cards and gifts, which okay. one of my roommates started and I helped him expand. And then I started a computer business when I did not own or know anything about computers. Okay. Because someone just said, look, can you, can you help me with these computers? And I said, yes, even before I thought about it. <laughs> And I knew one guy who was very good. So I went and spoke to him and he said that, you know, we can we can do this together. So basically I hired him to work for me to bring the contracts in. So I was more of a salesman mm -hmm. and he was more of the engineer. And through that process, I realized the guy was earning too much money off me. <laughs> and <laughs> I needed to earn that money myself. <laughs> so, you know, I decided to learn some of what he knew myself okay. so that I could earn a little bit more. So okay. that's what I did. You know, okay. I started studying, um, you know, computers. There was a program called A+. Um, there was an institution in Scranton, Pennsylvania. I can't believe I remember this. It's how many years ago now? <laughs> um, but it had a course called A+. So I learned that. It was a hardware, computer hardware thing. Um, but I did all of this without a computer. I, I mean, the problem was I had this old Amstrad computer, but 
Um, so I started working on computers, selling computers and doing things around computers and okay. then just, you know, sort of getting away with, you know, bringing projects in. I did a lot of good projects, even okay. for the Inland Revenue Service and, you know, Medilab and people like that. So, okay. Yeah, okay. I did quite well. Okay. So, I mean, doing civil engineering in KNUST wasn't so bad after all. It paid off in other ways. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it gave me a lot of time to build a computer business. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so, like, um, understand yourself how the computer business works so you can make yourself, um, like you said, make money for yourself and not have someone make money off of you. So, did you achieve this in the end? No, I think I did. Okay. I mean, I, I made quite a bit of money. I, you know, I had some things that others didn't have. Like, I had a phone. I was one of the few blown campus <laughs> who had a phone. <laughs> um, you know, we can laugh about that now, but you know, we're like, we knew each other. We're like four of us who had a phone at the time when yeah. it first came out and it was a Mobitel phone. And we even knew those at Legon who had phones, you know, it was like this little club of people <laughs> who had phones. I think that represented my wealth, you know, yeah. having a phone at the time. Yeah. And you no, know, the business did really well, I have to say. I mean, it was, you know, it did quite well. And I learned a lot from the process as well. Mm-hmm. I gave the business to the friend who was helping me at the time, the guy I learned from after I left Kumasi. So um, he continued, you know, I gave him all my tools and a bunch of software that I had. So yeah, it was a good, it was a good today. I would have sold it to him for, you know, quite a bit of money, but he got it for (laughs) free, you know, so I wasn't sophisticated enough in terms of business, but, um, but overall very, very profitable business. USD yeah. of then and even of now, you know, is a is a well resourced school. You know, so one would think that there's no need for you to engage in businesses to you know to make ends meet. Being in the university that that you chose, so what motivated you to do this in the first place? Look, it wasn't actually unusual on campus to have a business. Many students had you know different types of businesses, different skills. It was really just to supplement the student loan and live a slightly better lifestyle. If you really wanted to be out there. Going for parties, <laughs> buying check check every day, maybe every other day. You couldn't fund that from your student loan, you know. Like you'll be broke in like a week. Yeah. So you know, to live a certain lifestyle, you had to find the money somehow, and you know, stealing was not an option. Those were against my values. So you know, business came to mind, but a lot of people were doing different types of businesses. Okay. I think for me, maybe my ambition and. You know, a bit of luck as well, where I got some really big deals that I wasn't exactly planning for. And, right. and that, wet, you know, it, it, it whets your appetite to do more. Right. So that's really what happened. But yeah. Okay. You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars, and we've been having a very interesting conversation so far with Selam Adarevo, the CEO of MTN Ghana. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back from the break. We're speaking to Selam Adadevo, the CEO of MTN Ghana. And before we went on break, he was telling us what drove um, his ambition to start business while in the university. Salam, in your journey, you've graduated from tech. You've moved from Kumase into Accra. What was your plan? Well, I barely graduated, you know. It was um, <laughs> <laughs> it was not as smooth, but I did graduate, yes. And um, I had a job. I mean, I was working. I was working with one of my cousins while I was on campus. Okay. A company called IQ Computers. And I came to Accra to support him. I was a super sales guy working for him. Okay. Trying to sell more computers and, you know, get more deals. So that's what I started with. But I knew I was going to leave the country. I already had plans to leave. So I really did that for about three months. Mm. And then I left the country and went to the UK. Okay. Now, going to the UK, when I was in school, I had the opportunity to do an internship in my third year mm-hmm. with a company called Taylor Woodrow in the UK. Right. And I had an opportunity to go back and work with them in, in, the, in the south of London. So um, that's why I left and I joined Taylor Woodrow in September of 1998 when, mm-hmm. I, when I left. And then when you went in there um, to do the actual work, this wasn't supposed to be computer related, correct? Oh, no, this was no? actually civil engineering, yes. This was civil engineering work. But the I, same civil engineering? Yeah, you know, <laughs> you couldn't really get a computer job when you really didn't know much about computers, yeah. you know. So the best way to market myself was through my, my official degree. So that's what I did. And okay. Besides, I did an internship there the year before, so it was okay. a lot easier to get an offer to go back. Okay. The challenge was, by the time I went back, I mean... 
my job as an intern was very different from my job as a graduate. Right. right. And I suddenly realized that everything was computerized in civil engineering. And I was very handicapped and, mm. and just couldn't do my job. Mm. So, mm. you know, it was a very sad end and I had to quit. Well, maybe I didn't have to, but I did quit. Yeah, yeah. And um, was on the streets trying to figure out my life. Okay, on the streets doing what exactly? Were you also trying to study so that you can better understand the computer, the computer world? I was at crossroads, you know. I couldn't do civil engineering in, in, in the UK at least because I was handicapped. Mm. And to be honest, I really didn't like civil engineering. So part mm. of my struggle was the motivation to learn all mm -hmm. the things I had to learn. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had this interest in computers. So I got this crazy idea to quit and go and look for work in computers. Even though I knew I was handicapped in computers as well, for some reason I felt more comfortable reading and learning about computers and then interviewing for jobs in computers. Mm. And, and mm. also all the jobs that were advertised at the time, if you remember 1998, or maybe you don't remember. So yes, a lot of the jobs then were all about, you know, Y2K, yeah. the new yeah. computer age. It was just really coming up. So lots of opportunities in computers. So I really didn't have a choice. It was one of the areas that you would see in all the papers that I read. So that's how that journey from quitting Taylor Woodrow and trying to figure out how to get into computers mm. really started. Mm. So. so in between that, though, how did you, how did you keep up? How did you get money? How did you eat? Now I know you're trying to embarrass me. <laughs> I was on the streets, you know. <laughs> I was a hustler doing all sorts of odd jobs, yeah. you know, different things, you know, from being a security person. Um, I worked on, on a construction site for a period. Mm. Yeah, I was in security. I had all the specializations. I was a super security guy. Because <laughs> in security, some of you may not know this, but, you know, to do office security, you needed a certain certification okay. that trains you on office security. You, you sit in the reception, you... You walk up and down the stairs, make sure all the floors are safe, okay. all of that. To do um, sort of supermarket security, I had a different certification. Okay. I did that as well. So, okay. you know, I worked in supermarkets like Sainsbury's and Tesco's. Right. To do, um, what's it called? So you have office. Oh, yes. And to do construction site security, there was a different certification you needed. So mm -hmm. I did that as well. And I worked on some construction sites. But I was just like employable mm -hmm. outside of everything I wanted to do. But <laughs> <laughs> in security, I was very employable. So I did a, a, a lot of that. But in all of that, I was preparing to to do different certifications in computing as well okay. to try to transition. So okay. it was probably about four or five months. Okay. So within this period, were you able to amass enough um, capital to get you to then study the certification you wanted? Yeah, you can say that, yeah. But when you say amass enough capital, it sounds like very big. I mean, I could barely pay my rent. You know, I was dodging for my landlord. You know, I had a lot of financial issues. <laughs> but um, I did I did make enough money to, to do the certifications that I needed to. Okay. And then to start looking for work in computing, which, you know, thankfully I was able to break through okay. four or five months after. Yeah. Okay, nice. So you landed your first job. Yes, landed okay. my first job. It was a big job. Okay. Where yeah. was this? Some guy called Craven Taylor decided to hire me as a IT project consultant. I'm still not sure why, because <laughs> frankly, <laughs> he would have had many other options. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he worked for Taylor Woodrow, who was the IT manager for Taylor Woodrow. Okay. Sorry, not Taylor Woodrow, I apologize, for Electrolux. Okay. That was a company, white goods company, and they were moving from mainframes into computers. So I think my luck was that T um, Craven didn't actually know anything about computers because he mm. was used to mainframes mm. and he needed, you know, someone really good in computers <laughs> <laughs> to come and help Electrolux go from mainframes into computing. So mm -hmm. I got that project and I built a team and, you know, did the transition and everything. So. Oh, nice. And how long did you work there for? For about a year. Okay. And then what was next? <laughs> Yeah, so after about a year, I mean, I wasn't challenged enough. You know, I built a network. They had about six UK offices. So I built the network for all of that, connected them to Sweden where the head office was. And during that time, I learned a lot about other aspects of IT that were more challenging and maybe more engineering oriented. So, you mm. know, wide area networks, networking, mm. security, mm. all of that. So I decided to move from just, you know, sort of LAN, which is local area networks, into bigger sort of wide area networks okay. and more design networking type roles. So okay. I, I decided to, you know, train and develop more skills along those lines. Okay. So I went from a Microsoft certification to a Cisco certification, essentially. Okay. That's what I did. 
And I got a job in other places. It was still a bit of a transition, but I ended up ultimately at HP as a technology consultant, Hewlett Packard. Okay. With a and consulting arm. So in between, we'll come to your career at, um, at HP, but in between this period, is that when you decided to go into your MBA in finance? No, no, no. no. Okay. So I, so in between that period, I was, I got a couple of other jobs. I had, I struggled a bit. So I'm not sure if I should tell you all of this, but please do. <laughs> <laughs> so I left. This company I was with, I left Electrolux and I joined a company called GNA Consulting. So it's a small consulting shop where I became the one of two network engineers. Okay. The very small consulting shops. We're doing small projects, you know, with banks, small banks in the city of the in, you know city of London. I gained some experience, but I was really looking for a place where they would train me and develop me, and they weren't really investing in me and. You know, I think the day I left was when they hired this white guy called Michael, and he didn't know anything. He came from Microsoft, a Microsoft background, just as I did. And he got trained on firewalls, which I'd been asking for for six months. And I got pissed. And <laughs> that was the day I quit, you know. And the funny thing about quitting that job was quite, actually quite an awakening. You know, everything I had was for the company, right? So I, I quit. <laughs> <laughs> I gave my my pass back to the receptionist. I was walking, I stormed out of the door, you know, very confident in my decisions. And I got to the car and I realized the car was not mine. <laughs> yeah. Oh <my> gosh. <laughs> I had to walk back and give him the car keys. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. That was, um, yeah, don't quit that way. Yeah. So, then at that point in time, do you take a step back and say, what have I just done and what is my next move? Because I doubt yeah. you had another job on hand, right? No, I didn't. I didn't have another job. So, you know, walking to the junction to get a taxi was, I mean, that's when I started thinking, what the hell just happened? You know, <laughs> like, what did I do? But, you know, part of me was like, you know what? Don't um, don't stoop for, you know, for these things. You yeah. know, don't be treated this way. You yeah. know, stand for your right. Do all these things, you know. Martin Luther King, hey, let's go, you know. <laughs> But yeah, you, I mean, you get home and you realize, man, you know, maybe I should have been more humble. Maybe I should have been more patient. You yeah. keep doubting yourself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And my dad was actually in the UK for some medical checkups at the time. Mm -hmm. And he was so surprised. I was always at home, you know, and I'm not proud of this, but I lied to him. You know, yeah. I was like, hey, you know, just thought I'd take some time off, you know, spend with you, you know. He was like, oh, my God, he's such a good son. <laughs> but man, I didn't have a job, you know, I'd quit Yeah. a few days later, you know. I got a call from this guy saying, oh, I'm sorry. No, I didn't get a call from this guy. So between that, I got a, a job with Intel, okay. Intel Online Services. I okay. just started in in Europe. So they hired me and I was supposed to be based in Amsterdam. I was supposed to be based in Reading and then my offer letter came in and said I had to go to Amsterdam for three months. <laughs> I didn't like that mm -hmm. for some personal reasons, you know, <laughs> other than my dad, you know, if you know what I mean, you can read between the lines. <laughs> <laughs> so i sort of toyed around a bit tried to get them to change to you know to into um, to the uk yeah that took a while and then in the middle of all of that things got a little heated and they rejected the offer hmm. so i lost the opportunity got a job at at&t in the u.s i went to the u.s for a couple of weeks but um had some issues with my immigration status and i had to come back to the uk and that's when i got the job with with h when i came back so okay it was a little bit of an uncertain period, but things worked out in the end. Yeah. I, I got this job with HP and, you know, things were just explosive from there. You know, I joined a consultant arm, a lot of training, a lot of development, you know, so my IT skill set expanded immediately. I went from just being a hardware focused person into software development, into design, design mm -hmm. thinking, and then ended up my career at HP as a solutions architect. So in so, all these different um, job opportunities that you got, had you actually applied to them or was it referrals or? I can't remember. I mean, I was definitely, I used to apply to a lot of jobs. I mean, I was mm. like a professional at applying for jobs. You know? <laughs> so I'm quite sure I definitely applied. I don't think, I don't think I was just called up. Okay. I think the only one I remember I was called up was the HP job. Okay. Someone just called me up and said, a headhunter just called me up and said, they have this opportunity and they're looking for young engineers and, you know. Right. So. Okay. So, I mean, it looks like you're living the life, you know, working for HP. <laughs> the look on your face is like, eh. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. <laughs> 
what was it like? I mean, was it was it everything you thought it would be? Because when you were speaking about it in the beginning, it sounded like, yes, you finally arrived. Yeah, no, look, I, I had this dream of working for a global company mm. and one of the top five companies. So if you look at the companies I was, I got offers from mm. Intel, AT&T, mm. exactly. and HP. Exactly. It was not by I mean, it was not um, by chance, yep. right? I was very specific. I was quite deliberate in who I was targeting. So HP at the time was one of the top two companies in the world, mm. right? For developing young talent, all their programs. It was a fantastic place to work. I mean, mm. I loved my time in HP. And HP really is one of my most referenceable, I guess, you know, learning opportunities in my entire career. Every time okay. I talk about my career and the foundation, I would refer to HP. I mean, that's really where I think things started for me professionally, mm. you know. It, mm. it was a completely different experience from everything I'd had up until that time. Mm. I think my confidence in myself also changed yeah. at HP significantly because I was working on some crazy projects. I mean, the equivalent of GIPS, right, which yeah. does all the yeah. settlements. Yeah. I, I designed okay. the I'm the London Clearing House. I was one of the network designers on that project. Okay. When they're trying to automate, you know, check clearing from being paper-based into automated, right? Massive project. I I was one of the team members that helped build the Ease Internet Cafe. They had about 21 cafes globally mm. in different cities. You may remember those. I don't know. But they had five in London. <laughs> they had one in New York. You do? <laughs> yes. Yes, they had. So I was part of the project there as well. These were massive internet cafes, you know, 700 seaters, mm. 1,000 mm -hmm. seaters in New York, you mm. know, 500 seaters in Munich. So I worked on that as well, traveled around Europe for that project. A lot of learning. I mean, it was, it was fantastic. Right. So, yeah. All right. You're listening to Africa's Business Rockstars, and our guest is Selam Adarevo, the CEO of MTN Ghana. When we come back from the break, we'll hear from Selam about how he's living the fantastic life, but then moves to Ghana to work for Melikom. We'll be back. Welcome back. We've been having a very educative and very interesting conversation with Salama Dadevo, the CEO of MTN Ghana. And before we went on break, we were talking about, you know, his job at HP, which really has been a pivotal role in terms of who he is um, today. Salam, but you were working at HP in the UK. You're enjoying your job. However, you left and went to the States. What took you there? I was working at HP and I was... I was doing quite well, you know. I, I became, you know, solutions architect or a young solutions architect. And I was working in Newbury at Vodafone. And, you know, I was one of those that worked on the very first edition of my Vodafone, which was you know, mm. a portal to support you know, Vodafone customers. Mm. And while I was working on that project, you know, I kept wondering, like, who makes... I, th I thought it was so innovative, mm. right? Mm. That I kept asking, who makes these decisions mm. around what to do, what's the strategy, who's involved in that? Because I was only on the implementation side. Right, exactly. And and I guess my ambition was, you know, triggering all these thoughts about could I be on the other side? Could mm -hmm. I be part of the decision making team and not just the implementation team? Mm -hmm. So in, in trying to understand how that works, I met a guy called Florian Maquat, who is a Belgian, who was also working at Vodafone at the time for a consulting company, Booz Allen Hamilton. And, you know, I just had a chat with him one morning. He said, you know, he went to do an MBA in the U.S. He's also an engineer. Mm. Did an MBA and, you know, started a career in strategy consulting. Mm. So he managed to sell this whole thing to me about how, you know, I could basically pursue the same path. Okay. Right? Okay. But also I had two of my friends, um, quite interesting people, Elikem Kwenye here. Um, who was a business partner at the time in the UK, and Jerry Parks, mm. who were also considering to go and do an MBA. Actually, Elikem had already left and went to the US to do an MBA from okay. the UK. Okay. So he was sort of a pay setter for us. And they had all been talking about MBAs and stuff. So I was quite, I was a little familiar with this, but I really hadn't gotten my mind around exactly how it fit into my own career and, you know, if I wanted to go and do that. Mm -hmm. So this discussion with Florence sort of brought everything home for me, right. where it all just made sense. I could see what the benefit would be. I could see how it could apply practically. And from then, I started pursuing the journey to do an MBA. Um, initially, my focus was on the UK. I felt I was a little older. 
and I needed to save time mm-hmm. and, and maximize my productive years working. And the UK courses were about a year. Yep, yep. And, you know, maybe Manchester was 18 months, but the US was all two years. Mm-hmm. So I was a little bit more oriented to look at the UK until um, my two good friends were able to convince me to look at the US based on the opportunity, the rankings of the schools and the focus, okay. right? So on that basis, I started looking at the US schools and ended up at Wharton in okay. Philadelphia. Okay. So the so, reason why you chose Wharton is also, it's because, you, like you mentioned, it fell into the top rank for for finance and strategic management? Yeah, so I looked at the rankings at the time, and three years running, mm. I applied in 2004 and got in in 2005. Mm. Three years running, Wharton had been number one okay. um, on the FTSE and the Wall Street Journal rankings. So I really wanted to go to one of the top schools. So I looked at you know, Wharton, I looked at Stanford, I looked at Harvard. But when I went to visit the schools, I felt a, a stronger connection to Wharton. Okay. And made that my primary focus. Right. So, yeah. Okay. And was it everything you, you know, you thought it would be? Yeah, it, it was. I mean, I call myself Mr. Wharton because like, <laughs> I'm like a walking <laughs> billboard for Wharton, you know? <laughs> what, what did they do that was so instrumental? That's was, made you like have this love for the school. It was everything. I mean, I, I went in there. You know, when you, when, you, when you put something that's really dirty into a washing machine and it comes out completely clean. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like I went in and I came out and I was completely different. I, you could not recognize me at the end of the process, you know. <laughs> All the way from how much liquor I was consuming after school it had gone up multiple fold, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how <laughs> how many hours I slept at night had reduced by about ninety percent, you know. I mean, everything changed. Where yeah. you were working on all of this stuff, you were still trying to have a social life, and you had to be able to balance doing schoolwork, having a strong social life, yep. and, and remaining sane and normal yep absolutely so i mean i learned a lot about how to you know do multiple things at the same time mm-hmm. very <laughs> fast but with a certain level of quality um, just how to organize myself i had to make decisions on you know what i cared about what i don't care about so mm-hmm. i have very very bold lines on mm-hmm. things that i really don't care about and things that i care about because it was overwhelming i mean you had everything on campus if you wanted to to be part of a bird watching club, there'll be one, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> if you wanted to be part of a, um, I don't know, you know, a geometric science club, you know, studying different clays and rocks all over the world, there'll be one. I mean, there was right. everything on campus. And, right. you know, if you didn't, if you couldn't make decisions on what you liked, what you cared about, and what you wanted to experiment on, you probably wouldn't make it through the course. Right? Right. And the coursework was very demanding as well. Right. right? Extremely right. demanding. So, but fantastic school and, you know, like I learned so much. Well, I'm guessing the experience you had in school sort of speaks to what the U.S. economy is sort of like when you actually get into the working world. So after you were done with your MBA, did you stay in the States and work? Yeah. So I, I mean, I remember writing in my essays that I wanted to work in consulting for a number of years. And then my whole reason was I felt it was an acceleration of my learning, right? After business school, business school can be very academic. You're learning a lot of theories. We do do practical projects, but Mm -hmm. it's not enough to embed everything you've learned. And Mm -hmm. I thought coming from an engineering background, hardcore engineering, technical person, Mm -hmm. working in consulting means you get a lot of exposure in a very short period of time. You get a lot of variety of projects, variety of companies, and you can consolidate your business school learning into a skill set. I really wanted to build these deep skill sets around operations, finance, strategy, marketing, Mm. and consulting was going to give me that. So Mm. I pursued that path. I did consulting for three to four years. Fantastic time. Mm. I mean, I worked on some amazing projects. And the lifestyle was crazy. I mean, yep, I you know, can I imagine. <laughs> my my brother used to think that I was having a lot of fun. You know, like you wake up in the morning, it's like, where are you flying to today? I'm going to Cincinnati. It's like, wow, that's fantastic. You know, and then like <laughs> there'll be like a limousine waiting for me downstairs. We go to a private um, private <laughs> airline patch where you can take off because the company had a private jet. And I mean, that's the life you were living. But what right. you realize later on is that you were manipulated. You know, and I really need to go back and sue them because <laughs> literally. They control your life from like 5 a.m. Yeah. when the car is parked outside. You wake up, you you, you, know, you sort of draw your window. The car is there. The guy is sitting in there. And when you get into the car, there's like your coffee order is in the car. Right. So whatever it is you like from right. Starbucks or wherever is in the car. 
and your pack is in there, everything is printed, your directions, your everything you're doing for the day, profiles of the people you're meeting. I mean, everything is so well organized. Yep. <laughs> um, so on the plane, you would read the presentation, you get everything was so fast. And you can do two or three meetings in a day. You go to Cincinnati, you're there by 8.30, you finish by about 11, you're on the plane again to mm. another city to, you know, for another meeting, you're back in Boston by 5.36. I mean, that was the day, right? Mm. Mm. And then when you're back at 5.36, you're now doing emails and preparing for the next day. And it was just so hectic. But yeah, I mean, I did it for four years and I almost killed myself <laughs> in the process, literally. We're having a conversation with Salama Dadevo, the CEO of MTN Ghana. You managed to do that for a good three to four years, and then you realized that you want to do something else. You had a plan, right? What was your end goal? So look, when I was in consulting, I had I had a plan when I got in. Mm. And you know, LEK is a very sort of Caucasian consulting firm. Okay. You know, very few blacks had survived. <clears throat> So when I got in and realized no black had been a manager, I decided I wanted to be the first black to get to manager. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, got a little derailed and wanted to become the first black to, you know, to make it to partner. <laughs> and, but my real ambitions, you know, when I was coming out of business school was to do consulting for a number of years and then move into operations and become a CEO. Okay. I originally thought you could do that by becoming very senior in consulting and then transitioning into a CEO role. Okay. And I later learned, you know, you know, working very closely with CEOs and CFOs that it wasn't the natural path. Yes, okay. some people could do it, but it was, you know, the lesser traveled path. And it was more important to build operational expertise, demonstrate operational expertise, mm -hmm. own and run a PL, mm -hmm. and really prepare yourself for that type of role. Right. So I was, I had this conflict, you know, at about year three, year four, when I got promoted to a senior manager, which is essentially an associate partner. Mm. The next level above that was, was partner. Partner, okay. And I felt if I made it to partner, then it would be too late. And, you know, you won't be able to come back into operations because the roles would be too junior. Mm -hmm. It would just become very complicated a decision to make. And because becoming CEO was my primary objective, mm -hmm. I made a decision a month after I became senior manager, associate partner to quit. And <laughs> my, I mean, the partners who had, I mean, in consultant people sort of support you. Yeah, yeah. And the partners who were behind me, rooting for me, were just so confused. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, 70, 80% of the people who come in never make it to manager. Right. And then of those who make it to manager, like 20, 30% make it to senior manager. And then this one guy quits. <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes no sense, yeah. you know? And I quit, came to Ghana. I yeah. took like a, maybe a, I forget, 80, 90% pay cut. So it's like, he's just not quitting, but like yeah. he's quitting. Yeah, yeah. He's losing money. Yeah. He's coming to work for this company called Millicom. <laughs> That's, you know, Americans. If Americans don't know the company, then it doesn't exist. Yeah. So... It was quite a strange time for me. I had to really be confident in my decision right. to, to make the move. But I was convinced. Millicom gave me the best opportunity to own a small business, which was their innovation portfolio at the time. And I felt I have the chance to really build new lines of revenue for the business. Okay. And then demonstrate my ability to run small businesses within Millicom. So that was really the basis I came on. Right. And then during that time, Mobile money became quite a significant business yeah. out of the innovation portfolio. Yep. And then I sort of focused primarily on that for a number of years. But how did you land the Millicom job? So a really good friend of mine, um, a lady called Lucy Quist. You know, we were all in the UK at the same time. She's also an engineer. I think I was having a chat with her and telling her I was looking to move back. Okay. And she told me there was an opportunity at Millicom. She would speak to the CEO and, you know, she would see if he's interested in speaking to me the CEO at the time was looking for Ghanaians in the diaspora to come back home okay. so there was a you know a very good sort of you know coincidence there as well from right. his own objectives right. right right and and that's how it happened so I owe I owe my millicom journey to, <laughs> to to Lucy yes okay but then so then how did she feel when you told her you were leaving and going to Digicel <laughs> well she had left I think okay. as well so <laughs> I think it was fair game yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So, I mean, post-Melecom, <laughs> where you've built, you know, the mobile financial service, and then you find yourself out of Ghana again. Throughout your journey, you kept on talking about how you knew you'd always come back home. Yeah. So, you're home, but then you leave again. Yeah, look, because I was so senior in consulting, I, I honestly felt I didn't need to prove myself for more than three years to make it to CEO. Okay. And I had this conviction when I came to Millicom, I, I think I did enough in three years to demonstrate my leadership, my operational ability. I mean, I moved from product innovation portfolio mm. to MFS mm. to chief commercial officer and all in three years, right? Mm. So mm. there was very rapid progression. I thought that demonstrates my, uh, my abilities. But unfortunately, I don't think the company was ready for a Ghanaian to be, to be a CEO. Okay. And... I just sort of felt if it was about that, then it wasn't worth my while. Okay. Right? So I would rather, I'd given up 90% of my earnings. I took a huge pay cut yep. to come in. So yep. if it wasn't going to put me on the path for CEO, yep. I made a decision and said, then let me go back to the West and let me go back and earn what I'm capable of earning right. rather than sacrificing all of this right. and, and not being on the path. Right. So that was the real motivation. Um, so I left, I went to the UK for a bit and then moved to, moved to the Caribbean okay. when I got the opportunity to, um, to take up the job there. Okay. Now, the Caribbean was very interesting because, you know, you have all these plans, you know, you want to get to CEO, you want to do this, you want to do that. And the Caribbean comes up and you're like, I would love to work and live on an island, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, that was one of the big attractions, but I did yeah. insist that my career plan was to get to CEO and I sort of agreed with the company to yeah. support me along those along yeah. those lines and it happened after about a year being at digicel oh so. good good it didn't take that long no it didn't okay. it didn't and um, yeah and it was a great opportunity i, I yeah, ended up becoming the ceo of haiti mm. which was digicel's largest market um so you know it was a an opportunity that i would probably not have had in many places right and you know i'm very thankful to the guy who um, who had smoked something that morning when he appointed me because <laughs> it made no sense. Like I didn't speak French. It was a French country. Yeah, I'd never been CEO. It was yeah. the largest market for Digicel. Typically, yeah. you put a very experienced CEO in that market, yeah. Yeah. and they put a rookie in there. And yeah. you know, it was a market that was in decline and needed to be turned around. And you put someone who's never done it before. So, um, but you know, Kenneth McGrath gave me the opportunity, and I proved yourself him, his decision yeah. right yeah so with the results so yeah you know you sort of like achieved i'll put it that way your plan which was to be ceo of, of a company and you were mm -hmm. ceo of digicel but right now i'm speaking to you in the capacity of ceo of mtn ghana you know so what were those conversations like did you apply for the job most probably not you're probably not the only person that they were looking at you know so what, what were those conversations like that got you into this role let me probably use my digicel role because i think it's it's a more interesting transition okay. from never being a CEO into becoming a CEO. Okay. And I think throughout my career, I'd, I had a lot of different mentors at different stages. Mm. And they would all give you different perspectives on you know, how to move up the corporate ladder. But the one thing that I decided for myself based on all the different mentoring that I received was that I, I wanted to remain authentic. And I wanted my work to speak for itself. Right. And it had always been my biggest pride, right? It, it wasn't enough for me to, I mean, you have these things called sponsors where people like you, yep. and, you know, but if, if you're going to sponsor me, then it must be because of my work. And right. for me, that was really important. It, it doesn't, it, you know, it can't be because of my color. It can't be because of my sister. I mean, it had to be because of my work. So I focused a lot on that. So even when I was at Millicom, I focus a lot on my work mm. and the quality of my work, my predictability about the business, my operational excellence, mm. all the things I put in place, investing in people, mm. making sure I developed other people along the, along the road as well. And those were the things that were extremely important for me. And that's exactly what I did at Digicel. Mm. Now, the guy who, the CEO at the time, Kenneth, that I mentioned, he, he saw something in me, but it wasn't as easy as, you know, I had different office. I had three offers for CEO okay. before the CEO of, of Haiti offer came. And I had to make decisions for all those offers, whether I consider them, whether I decline them. And I declined two of them, which were also within Digicel, other okay. markets, okay. right? And I declined them because I didn't think they were the right thing for me. I thought the markets, the market characteristics weren't the best for me mm. to really demonstrate what I could do. I felt I needed a bigger challenge. Mm. Mm. Now, as someone who hasn't been CEO yet, that could be considered arrogant. Mm -hmm. 
or you know but ambition ambition yeah but but to <laughs> me it was like i knew i could do i could do bigger right so shortly afterwards the hate opportunity came and i had to fight for it it was they actually appointed someone else externally okay and you know i went and met the leadership in 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 jamaica at the time and i went with a three year plan mm. on what i was going to do for haiti mm. and literally sat outside the ceo's office for almost a day waiting for the chance to present this plan to him wow. and to explain to him why i need to be the ceo of haiti and not this person that they've brought in who i wasn't supposed to know about by the way but i found <laughs> out so and then he finally gave me he gave me i think 24 hours to finalize my document and added a couple of dimensions to it to produce a strategy for the business and then i presented the following morning and later on i got the opportunity to be to be ceo i was offered the job nice. and i think maybe what i learned from that was you know you if you really know what you're looking for you you have to be ready to fight to put in mm-hmm. what's required mm-hmm. and sometimes mm-hmm. people don't know what what to put in and secondly i couldn't have gotten the ceo's attention if i hadn't done a certain type of work before mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. haiti was in decline and i had been there as a coo for about 6 7 months and we'd already stabilized the business right, right? i had right. introduced new lines of revenue i was able to give them confidence about the future of the haiti business right and when you look at a lot of these decisions a lot has to do with the future right a lot of people would say look i'm running a business just like my boss is running a business and i can do his job i don't mm. know why i'm not considered mm. <laughs> what people don't realize is nobody cares about mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. day-to-day running of the business mm-hmm. everybody cares about how much more value can you mm-hmm. create going forward mm-hmm. so if you cannot demonstrate that from a strategic perspective from an ambition perspective then you know you're really not going to be considered much and 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 that's maybe what one of the things that worked for me right um, i didn't know this before but because of my ambition that's how i was wired right i mean the ceo said look i'm looking for haiti to become this type of business i'm looking for new lines of revenue and i said i can turn around the moa money business and i can get to this stage in 24 months. Yeah. And he had that same target for maybe I don't know 3 4 years. Yeah. And he says you're crazy. You can't do it. <laughs> and I said I can do it. And we did it in about 22 months, right? When we finally when I was finally appointed and had my team. So if you don't express that boldness, it's very difficult for someone trust to support you, you and yeah. to trust you. Yeah. But the boldness cannot just be in the air. Mm-hmm. Something has to back it. Mm-hmm. and what backs it is what you've done up until that point. Right. So all of that becomes, you know, quite important and right. I think it all came together for me at Digicel. So Yeah. So it seems like you have all these attributes and um, that has landed you this current role. So I'm sure CEO of MTN Ghana, I mean, number one telco. It's a walk in the park. Managing these businesses <laughs> easy <laughs> i wish i could say that walk in the, you know walk in a park is not a phrase that I've, i've i've thought about for like 15 years man because it's been a hustle i'm telling you <laughs> yeah. every day is a hustle there's a song like that you yeah. know yeah. every day you're hustling yeah, yeah that's that's how, that's how i feel you know? <laughs> but i'm sure you have, your, you, have your, you have your solid plan that you know you go on day by day Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah, you have to have a plan. I think one of the things that um Mazuma Nelson said once was everybody has a plan until you receive the first punch. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have a plan. Yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back up to this break. Hi Salom. So it's been a very engaging conversation. Uh, thank you for your time. But on Africa's business rock stars, we have what we like to call the rock stars quote. So it's that mantra that, you know, spurs you on and keeps you going. So what is your rock stars quote? Wow. I th- I thought about something and I've, I don't even remember what it was now, but <laughs> there's a quote that I I repeat a lot and it's something that I've said several times as well publicly. And I think that's probably an appropriate one, which is Nothing in life happens by chance. Absolutely. And I I believe you have to be deliberate. I believe you have to if you believe that nothing happens by chance, it changes the way you approach things. If you keep thinking things are going to happen, 
because other things are happening somewhere, then you won't necessarily put in the, the required effort and and investment that's that's needed to make some of these these things happen. So for me, it's been one of my guiding principles of life that nothing happens by chance. I grind, I hustle, I push, I develop, I learn. I'm reading every day because I know I need knowledge to continue to survive in my role. Right. And I'm trying new things and pushing myself. So. Right. Yeah, so nothing in life happens by chance. Thank you. So. Nicely said. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Seloma Dadebo, the CEO of MTN Ghana. My name is Nefa Aho, and I've been your host, and I'll catch you on the next episode. Goodbye. Thank you. <laughs>